I do what I can do, you know, I do what I do what I can do to be accommodating and <laughs> got to be specific with what you want. <laughs> Welcome to Making It an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Guys, I have the distinct honor and privilege to introduce you to the poet, philosopher, photographer, prolific indoor gardener, model, actress, designer and seamstress, author, illustrator, singer, now creative coach, and by the way, my son's godmother, Monica Beale. I met Monica while on my first audition after moving back to the U.S. in the strange new world of Southern California. It was a time in life where I was in an incredible state of flux, and I was getting the chance to see what it was like to live on the edge and just keep walking. I remember being constantly amazed as I watched how the things that would keep us going would just land there in our lives exactly when we needed them. And that's how Monica came into my life. She dropped in like an answer to a prayer for a true friend who could help me make sense of this new place. We met in the elevator at L.A. Opera. She was this beautiful, well-dressed, sprightly woman whose smile was wide and whose eyes shone like new pennies as she asked me about my Bird of Paradise necklace. By the time that two-floor elevator ride was over, we were friends. We left that audition and went straight for green tea in Little Tokyo, where she rattled off everything I needed to know about the L.A. classical music scene, who to meet, and what was going on. We met at a time when we were both just starting to turn from the prescriptive opera industry pipeline path. One memory we share is of spending an afternoon on Yap Tracker together, trying to be disciplined as we applied for young artist programs. Both of us secretly miserable and unable to really articulate why. Since then, we've both grown in our own ways and started to forge our own paths. I moved the next year to Oakland and part of what helped me even begin to forge my own path were the hours of conversation we would have on the phone every week. I would pace the beautiful park around Oakland's Lake Merritt, allowing myself to dive deep with her into our psyches, unraveling the Gordian knots of these questions we began to pose ourselves. What are we here for? What do we do with these singing degrees? Who are we really as creative individuals, as artists? How do we make things that matter? What do we even want to make, especially when we're not trying to make them in order to prove our own worthiness? Does it even matter that we make things? And yes, we did think about having a podcast together. So I'm thrilled to have her on now, to share what this process has been like for her, what it has been like to go through that in-between, where you're asking the questions but you haven't found the answers yet what answers she's found for herself on the other side, and how she's translating what she's learned into her work as a creative coach, where her mission is to help artists curate the chaos that is inherent to creating. As she says, I'm on a quest to help you transform painful monotony into profound harmony, stitching together personal lifelong macro ideals with day-to-day micro intentions.
Thank you so much for being here, Monica Beal. Thank you for having me. I know so much of the unfolding of my journey and like that real cusp time. You were the person there to help me navigate that. And I like to think that we were helping each other, but you definitely helped me. And um, you've played a very important role in my life in that way. And so it's such an honor for me to be able to share your voice with the people who listen to this podcast and share your perspective. Thank you. So I would love if you could tell us what your path was. So a path is only what I'm learning. A path is only a path when we're looking back on it, right? But what are those moments that kind of led you zigzagging your way to where you are now? What an interesting, I mean, it's always such a fun question to ask people that. Um, Lately, I've been doing less looking back at the rear view mirror kind of a thing and Mm -hmm. focusing more on present. Um, But additionally, I think it's important, you know, as we build our resumes and our CVs in order to communicate, this is what I can do. This is what I have done and can do that. Yeah. Those, those details are helpful. So I started out in a small town where I really wanted to be a ballerina. That was my initial dream was to dance, but I never took any lessons and music was just a next kind of affinity and singing was very easily accessible because we carry our voices with us everywhere. And so I, you know, I started uh, to get into choir and middle school plays and musical and things like that. And I, uh, and I just kept going with it as much as I could. I went to USC and um, actually I, first I went to UMKC conservatory and spent a year studying. Uh, my first voice teacher was the, um, was in, I, so, okay, let me rewind. <laughs> we can edit, you can edit this back, right. I think a little <laughs> bit. So after middle school and high school plays and musicals and all of those things, during the middle of my high school career, I moved across the state. So mm-hmm left my hometown, moved across the state, and, um, and I got involved there. My English teacher at my new high school introduced me to my very first regular voice teacher. Huh. So that was the first place that I like really disciplined and, you know, and started studying regularly. It was before it was always like once, a, once or twice a year kind of a thing mm-hmm. with a big, you know, like a big trek to go see a voice teacher preparing for a specific festival or whatever. But in high school, I started studying with uh, Frank Curtis, who really helped develop my voice. And, you know, it's so interesting when we think about like the people who are mentors and the people who shape us, his, his teaching was so instrumental in allowing my voice to blossom. And I ended up going to UMKC conservatory after high school for a year and studying with his ex-wife, Rebecca Sherburn Bly. And she was a wonderful teacher, but I knew I was going to transfer. I ended up going to USC after a bunch of different serendipitous alignments and University I, of Southern California for the uninitiated. Yeah, at USC Southern <laughs> California, uh, all the way from Kansas to Southern California, and yeah. I, yeah, and I, I, I actually got involved with the opera scene there, but I was also had a foot in the acapella world. So, ah. 
in my academic side of things, some of the, you know, there was, there was kind of an attitude of, of looking down on being involved in things that were not opera, Mm. but I loved the community and I loved the camaraderie that I got to experience with the acapella scene that, um, you know, I didn't, it wasn't the same in the very like rigidly disciplined spectacle of opera. So Mm. that was kind and did of it that. feel it really felt like kind of switching worlds when you went from one to the other? Yes, absolutely. And the acapella world was much more playful and fun and you know had a had a relaxed atmosphere, whereas the opera was like pressure and make sure that you get it, you know, exact and all of these, all of this historical context that I was trying to fit myself into with the Fox system. And you know, and I remember specifically asking my voice teacher at USC, uh, Shigemi Matsumoto, who's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I asked her if I could learn, or I told her I would be interested in learning a song from Carmen. And she said, oh no, absolutely not. You will, you would not sing that. You know, and she was very, <sighs> very much guiding me as was the best to her, you know? And that's the thing that I think is so interesting about this whole system is like, on the one hand, teachers want to help guide students through the path of the path of least resistance, the easiest way to a career. And according to the the way way, they saw it done, right, exactly. Which is the way it's historically done, which is the way that, you know, and so that, but at the same time, I felt like there was a lost opportunity for me to explore different repertoire that could have given me, you know, just, I mean, there's, there's, I think it would have been fine for her to say, you can learn that, but that's not going to be part of your six right. pieces that we are presenting. You know, right. I think that that would have been an interesting, that could have been a, a, a different choice, but that, um, yeah. that was one of the initial things that I remember feeling, um, feeling in, in diminished by which mm. that I thought, oh, my inclination to be expressive and creative is not going to be encouraged in this industry. And so that was kind of, you know, she, she definitely encouraged me and was incredibly helpful to developing my musical um, communication, but the, um, but that kind of, you know, that kind of legacy that she received that so many yeah. in opera. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that a, we've, we've discussed at length. <laughs> yeah. This is such an, an excellent illustration of what so many people heard coming up are still hearing don't spend time on it if it's not in your wheelhouse but Mm -hmm. we actually by doing that we actually never really learn what our wheelhouse is we basically learn the box or the fuck that we were assigned in some way yeah yeah and in a lot of cases not it's not even right you know yeah and it's very it's very interesting how early on how early they want they being kind of the proverbial they, not anyone specific that I've mentioned, but the they being how do we fit today's artists into the machine that exists rather than, rather than as we have discussed many times, how do we as artists bring something to the machine that exists and allow it to evolve in order to say what it is that we experience. Our stories are central to our lives. Our our whole, you know, our whole being for reason for being raison d'être is what is the story that we're telling? What is the story that we create together? What is the story that we can, 
yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about how identity is a collaborative construct. And mm. when we play with each other, when we work together, those kinds of identities, the understanding, the, you know, the mirroring back and forth, the like, oh, let me send you, let me send you this idea that I have as a, as a, as a statement. And you come back with a question or I come back with a question. And then you come at me with a statement of this is who I believe I am. This is what, this is what I believe is. And I, you know, this is how I experience the world or all these different grand kind of things, even in our micro interactions. So, um, yeah, it's just like, it's important to recognize within the context historically where we come from and to honor all of the work that has been done by our predecessors because they have paved the way, you know, and, and what else can we do and how can we expand it even to include even more diversity? I think that's the most important question. I love everything you're saying. I want to dive. (laughs) You like got me so excited when you said like identity is a collaborative construct. Oh my God. That makes me so excited. This is why I love talking to this lady. y'all. But it is, it's so true that like, when you're in a space where it can be a conversation where my experience matters just as much as your experience, then it's like, we're all looking out the window that we have uh, into life, into the world, into what's there. And like, we're saying what we're seeing and then like receiving back, Oh, well, this is what I'm seeing. And it's like, your window expands a little bit. And when we're like, tying it back into that education where you're in a space where everyone who is mentoring you has heard what you have to sing about 50 kajillion times and has a ton of opinions that were given to them that they formed through their career or whatever and you are it's this environment where it feels like you're living up to something rather than you're getting to create it so then we're in the situation yeah. where my experience doesn't matter as much as your experience. Right. It becomes a, it comes a comp- competition in a sort of dominating um, posturing kind of a way where you have to like climb up, you know, it's, it's, this, it's very much like into the pyramid scheme of like, Oh, you know, we have to climb on top of each other in order to get somewhere. Mm. And there's a scarcity, there's a scarcity mentality innate in that, in that perspective, because it says there's not enough to go around there's, so I have to take in order to, in order to be seen, in order to be heard, Mm. in order to be, Mm. and what's actually true and what is actually really enlivening and expanding is when we recognize what we give Mm. is what we, is what we receive. What we give is given to ourselves by the very act of giving it, that's, that is our gift to us, but, and you know, that is our gift to the world. It's, it's, but it's like, if you think about it that way, it's like, Oh, how do I, how do I give it in such a way that that generosity continues generating rather Mm. than diminishing? Yeah. It's so true. Something that was kind of sparked when you were, when you were talking about that and that like pyramid scheme, which is also a whole other tangent when it comes to the opera industry. But that idea that it's like, in order to be significant, I have to keep climbing. Mm. 
this pyramid. I have to keep getting this, this recognition. I have to get these dream roles. I remember I had one mentor who, who was fantastic. I mean, he coached me for a while and he was the first to hear like kind of the big roles that I could sing. And like, I look back on that now and think, wow, like, I don't know actually how much I wanted to sing that those roles. I knew that I wanted the significance that I thought those roles would bring me. Yeah. And that's such a difference. Yeah. And then what did you do after you had that kind of, you know, ego recognition moment (laughs) where you're like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, honey, that's been the last like, how many, four years of my life Mm -hmm. is unraveling that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a good point to come back to you and your, and your kind of path, because we did a lot of unraveling together and um, I'm, yeah, (laughs) I met you. I know you were, I'm going to fast forward your life just a little bit, but I do want you to go back. I know you were out of your degree program and you had done some administrative work in a lab. Mm-hmm. Yes, because she's a real smarty yes. pants girl. Um, <laughs> and you're one of the few artist friends I have. And I know there are lots of them out there. You're, you're just one of the few of mine who, like, for fun, likes to sit down and read things with, like, lots of studies and statistics and numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Nerd alert, nerd <laughs> alert. <laughs> You should totally take pride in it. And I absolutely do. And you had actually just quit that job to really pursue your creative life. Um, and, yeah. and if I understand correctly, it was principally you were going like, quote unquote, going for it with singing. Yeah. So that's that actually brings up a, a good a good couple of points that I did not mention that I thought about earlier when um, which were are at the end of high school. I was asked by my aunt and uncle after a trip, a special trip for graduation gift. I was asked the question, where do you see yourself in five, 10 years? And I, you know, had a few like items that I, that they wrote down as we were, as we were leaving the airport, they wrote down a couple of things. And I remember saying, one of the things I was saying was I'll be in Europe singing mm-hmm. opera. And I found myself 10 years later mm. singing in Italy. And it was a really special time. Yeah, it was a really special year. I I was working for an incredible laboratory, a new lab at the University of Southern California called The Bridge. And their whole like mission was to understand the human body across scale. And that was in alignment with all of the things that I was reading at that time as well about how the micro expresses in the macro Mm -hmm. and the same principles that govern across scale are expressed and they're expressed, whether we're talking about cells or this ourselves. And so the um, opportunity that I had to go sing in Italy that summer uh, was remarkable and wonderful. And after which I decided, okay, I'm going to give the singing career my full attention So I left this amazing, incredible team working on scientific studies about cancer and, you know, protein receptors and all these cool things and went 
headfirst into yaps, you know, yap applications, gigging around town, um, you know, taking different classes that for networking purposes, as well as for polishing up skills purposes. And, um, and we met about a year or so after that. So Mm -hmm. it was, um, it was 2017 or 2016 that we met 2017. 2017. Yeah. It was soon after I moved to LA. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember the question. <laughs> I'm trying to remember it too. Well, it. Uh, the question was like, what would tell, you know, to, you were asking about my path and after, so I had that incredible experience singing in Italy mm-hmm. and came back and decided that, yes, I'm going to focus on the singing. Thing. Yeah. And it was about that decision to focus and like how you felt in that space af- after having had that other like work environment. Well, I felt like having had all of that work environment experience, I felt really well equipped to start to kind of like strike out on my own, you know, in that way and felt like I had skills that could really support me mm-hmm. in my application process, be it, you know, just being a professional colleague and having organization and focus on priorities and like really getting all of my ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. So that, that helped tremendously. But as you know, the opportunities that presently exist only serve a small percentage of the applicants for presenting their skills. And so what's interesting is trying to figure out how do I, you know, I always felt myself being repelled by the thought that I have to contort what I do and how I sound into a very narrow definition that other people like that, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the collaborative construct of that identity mm-hmm. has been predetermined and it, it, it felt, so I, I have this, um, have these gestures with my hands a lot where I, oh, good. I wanted to talk about closed. This. Yeah. I have fists closed and, you know, and like clenched toward me. Then I have, um, the hands like out pushing away. And then I have hands open, soft in front of me. The clenched fists are often that fear of being taken advantage of that fear of not having enough, Mm -hmm. not being enough. And then the hands like pushing away. It's like, these are the things that I would reject, um, that I would say, no, this needs, this does not need to come into my realm. This needs to stay away, but in a fear way, not to be confused with like healthy boundaries. And then the, and then the open palms, the open hands is it's my visual. It's my visual for what I call living by invitation, Mm. which is, I think what we are talking about in our greater zeitgeist at the moment, this whole idea of ask, Mm -hmm. you know, and consent, let's have, let's ask for things and give consent to communicate, Mm. to engage, to share rather than grabbing. And that's another one. What that's another one of the gestures is like reaching and grabbing, Mm which then turns into clenched fists of I have to protect and I have to hold what is perceptibly mine, perceptively mine. Mm -hmm. And so when I was on the YAP path and when I was doing applications and stuff for the productions that I, that I, you know, quote, unquote thought are, this is what I should do Mm -hmm. that all of that felt like either this, like really far out of my reach, like reaching and, or it felt like it was pushing me or, or requiring me to, to have this kind of just smallness and Mm -hmm. to have this like protective shell and to, you know, that kind of all of those fear-based expressions that come out of that. And that 
repelled me from those projects. And that's those, like every time I met with potential colleagues who had that kind of energy, it didn't align, you know, it didn't Mm. align with where I was at. And so it was a, it was hard because I kept wanting to make it work, Mm. but you know, you can't make something connect. Like you can't make it happen. Mm. The harder you, the harder you try to make it. So the more it pushes away. Unfortunately, you know? like, I mean, but also, <laughs> fortunately. Fortunately, also yeah, fortunately, I think very fortunately, I think it does because it, it helps us to, I mean, it helped me to come to a place where I'm reflecting. Okay. Hey, how's it going? Me to me. How you doing? Are you enjoying this? Mm. No, mm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. so much. Well, why? Because mm-hmm. I have things that I want to say and I'm not saying them through these channels. Mm. So that begged the question, well, what else, what else is there? What else could there be? Mm. I I love this idea of like this grabby energy. That is, that's something I remember talking to another friend once about just that kind of grabby energy in this industry that like, if you're not at a certain level, you're grabbing. If you're at a certain level, sometimes you get surrounded by people with that grabby energy. I think that's such a that's such a great way of describing it that it's it's grabbing in order to clamp down mm-hmm. and try and make something happen. Yeah. It's almost like I'm realizing just listening to you how how for me it was almost like a I'm also a, a very like dogged and determined and like annoyingly loyal person to like what I want to do. So it's very hard for me to give up. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who was like, what? what year were you born in the Chinese Zodiac? Yeah. Was like, like an ox. And she was like, and what's your star sign? Uh-huh. Taurus. Yep. I was like, Oh yeah. You're stubborn as hell. Um, but the, just this like almost being trained that it's what you're supposed to do is like, keep running yourself against a wall, telling yourself you're wrong for the wall being there, but mm. you still have to, you still have to run at it. Yeah. So what was your process out of it? When did you start recognizing? Okay. Like you said, I, checked in my with myself and I didn't like it. And I yeah. Was it feeling good? What got you to start having that conversation with yourself? Well, first I want to just touch on what you mentioned about star sign and the and the Chinese zodiac and stuff. Those uh, so I actually started getting into astrology and I started reading about archetypes. I started reading about psychological archetypes, um, Jungian psychology, which then led me to reading uh, that wonderful book that many people have read very recently. It's been quite popular, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa mm-hmm. Pinkola. Yeah. Yes. And she, so in the, in those, in those realms of, of exploration and research and study for what I've done, the archetypes, understanding the archetypes was an illuminating shift for me to recognize that as a, as a human and as a, as an artist, my reason for being is to tell a story. I'm here to experience life and I'm here to tell a story about what I experience. And Mm -hmm. when I understand the archetypes, then I'm able to choose the colors that I think of archetypes as each a different color on the color wheel. Mm -hmm. And I reach to those colors because colors are neutral colors. We don't, you know, colors have psychological um, triggers and sort of stimulations, but they don't have a morality attached to them. 
mm-hmm. you know, red mm-hmm. can be fiery, passionate, lovely, but it can also be fiery, destructive. But those things are, in my view, those are options. They are qualities. Mm-hmm. They are choices. And the archetypes mm-hmm. of the four basic elements from that we get from astrology, which are earth, air, fire, water, also correspond to our experience as humans with earth being the physical air being our intellect, fire being our willpower and our drive and the water being our emotional experiences. And so when I started to, when I start to think about the stories that we have inherited and the stories that I'm telling myself or that I want to communicate to the world, I think about what, what kind of progression, what kind of, yeah, what kind of part of a cycle what kind of a progression through a cycle Mm. of those elements Mm -hmm. am I living? Mm. And what's so curious about, you know, like running your head up against the wall, trying to make it happen Mm -hmm. when you think that's what you should be doing Mm -hmm. is directing your fire energy and like really like pounding that earth energy into a static fixed, really stressful experience rather than Rather than, so what I've started to do is I started to pay attention to the cycles of, I started paying attention to the cycles of the moon and how the water, that kind of the pull that the moon has on our waters also affects us emotionally. I started to meditate and contemplate and like pull that into my experience as a, as a human and as an artist. Mm -hmm. And then I worked with yoga for a while, which, you know, you introduced me to yoga line, which is a fabulous branch of yoga. And I think about you almost every day now when I do (laughs) yoga because of the different things that we worked on. Yes. I'm a certified yoga teacher and yoga. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But the cool thing about that is like, okay, how do I get, how do I use my physical body mm-hmm. in this space to tell a story? What is my story? You know, mm-hmm. each morning it's like, I'm on the yoga mat. What's my story today? What do I experience? And what's cool is like coming to it now, having practiced for several years, being able to have this open hands approach that says, where am I today? Rather than reaching and grabbing to say, this is where I want to be. This is where Mm. I have to be. Mm. And just to say, where am I? That invites like an inhale. It invites this inspiration from the universe for me to explore expiration being. Mm. And that's all that, that's all that is truly in any, you know, and there's the metaphor of yoga, the the metaphor. I mean, everything is a metaphor Mm -hmm. for another thing because on the macro scale, it all comes down to those same principles that mm. govern. I love that. I think it's like something I've been discovering lately that there's this whole conversation around like Western culture and how we we're so pent up in our bodies because there are so many, there's kind of so many rituals and so many things that we have just pushed aside and left out of our culture, kind of selected out of our culture in a way, mm-hmm. dancing for, mm-hmm. for milestones or for anything singing as just a a daily way of being and one thing I've been craving a lot lately that was kind of sparked while you were saying that was just movement and I've realized really anything if we decide that it's an energy release it can be an energy release it can be something that helps us work through something if we're deciding to like not just lock into our physical body but also our, our emotional body like have those elements exist at the same time yeah unlock yeah. lock in and unlock them 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so nice to also think there's a lot of talk about expanding consciousness and awareness and simply understanding that there is nowhere else to be. I mean, that's one of the hardest things for us to, mm -hmm. especially in this West, and I feel like in our Western present day and age, it's really hard for us to accept and to really allow for that to just be, wait, what? That's it? Wait, what? That's enough? Mm. And when we cultivate, when we begin to cultivate, when I began to cultivate this understanding of, okay, if that is so, how does that inform how I move from one present moment to the next? If I'm not trying to get somewhere, how do I get anywhere? Of mm. course, we, of course, we always get somewhere mm -hmm. because we, we are in motion, you know, yeah. we're the chaotic kinetic energy that, that, it, that exploded the universe into being continues through us. And so it's, we can't not do something. Yeah. We will always do something and be even sitting there is, is, a is thing already that mm -hmm. you're doing and giving that space, giving yourself the space to pay attention to your breathing, to pay attention to your own goings on with all of those elements, the, the body, the emotional, the spiritual, the intellect, when you start to pay attention to those patterns, then you start to be able to direct and guide yourself through the experiences or when, and when you're under, when you're like, when you're under like a really heated moment or, you know, one of those things that's like completely consuming of your consciousness, especially like, you know, when we get into arguments with people that we love, or if we have, you know, or things that just irk us, like if mm. you have those reactive moments having cultivated that space allows you to number one, have grace for yourself. And number two, explore new options for how to navigate that scenario, rather than continuing to repeat the patterns that have already been established. It gives you a second to say, Oh, if not that, what else, mm. how else could it be? What would the best possible outcome look like? How, like, how else could I, you know, especially I think about relationships, like intimate relationships are very present, you know, or family relationships are very present for people and, and immediately tangible. When you are redirecting someone from doing something that you don't want them to do, mm -hmm. you can, you can either, you know, shout and yell at them, or you can, you know, navigate a different option. And I grew up in a, in an environment where, if you got past a certain level, you were going to hear some volume, you know, mm -hmm. it was going to be, it was going to be a, and I think we all, we all go there. That's a human, that's our, that's our natural human response is to, you know, kind of expand into this. I mean, it's a very animalistic kind of a thing of like, oh, you're in my space, you know, watch, mm. watch dogs and cats. <laughs> They're like, you're in my space, get out. Mm. But then they, they shake it off and they, they don't always respond that way. Whereas humans have this interesting thing where we like hold on to that memory mm. and then we continue to somehow resonate with each other on that level, or even just within ourselves where animals are able to let it go. We kind of hold on to it. And so as I've worked through letting go, a lot of those tendencies and a lot of those like echoes, if you will, of of things. It's yeah, all those different places in the body where it's stored. And mm -hmm. that informs also my artistic approach and my path. Yeah. And we had talked earlier about what we wanted to talk about today. And I thought one one thing that even when I was talking about starting this podcast, you were like, well, somebody should talk about just 
that state where you don't know, where you just don't know what's next mm-hmm. or where you're even, where you're even at the stage where you're like, should anything be next? Should I keep doing this? Where there's just a lot yeah. of should in your space. And yeah. I know both of us That's were really- stakes. <laughs> Yeah, like where you're just in this kind of flux where you've like recognized the ego. I definitely had that where you're just like, holy shoot, I was doing all of this. I was doing most of this because of my ego. And what does it mean now? How do I even, how do I exist now in this other space and still do a thing? Yeah. Yeah. What was that? I think what was like personally for you? What was that experience like? Um. It's also been interesting coming to recognize that like ego. So again, kind of getting away from the judgment, mm-hmm. the morality of like Absolutely. good and bad. Yeah. For me, it's been a lot of like should, should not good, bad, um, right, wrong, all that kind mm-hmm. of, um, that kind of perspective that like really polarized duality mm-hmm. and either, or into an, and situation, mm. which, um, which is another blog that I wrote actually about, but, and mm-hmm. there were, Mm, for me, I wrestled a lot with this idea that like limitation, Mm. I love freedom. I love absolutely having freedom. And that's something that's really important to me as a personal thing, but also as like a social movement for, for individuals, it's important for me to cultivate autonomy where I am responsible for myself and I am supporting myself and I am free I have my, I have autonomy to do, to make the choices that I want to make mm-hmm. and to, that I have access to understanding the options that exist mm-hmm. so that I can develop what I want to develop, that I can depict what I want to depict mm-hmm. and, uh, and play with how that communicates whatever story I'm presently learning or experiencing and the personal experiences. Yeah. Where I, there were, there, there, there came I mean, it's never, it's never just one point Mm -hmm. because as we develop, we are whole beings and all of the things that we do in any one area of our life affects the way that we do everything else. Mm -hmm. So when we start, so when I wanted to start changing the shame script that I was playing, Mm -hmm. uh, that I was (laughs) playing into, I just focused on for one whole year, I focused on one thing and it was the discipline of playing with the yoga mm-hmm. every morning. So I played with that and I cult- so I cultivated number one, uh, my integrity because I was, I was able to say, yes, I showed up, mm-hmm. I played. And for me, play is really important because it's pleasurable. It's so fun. It's so exciting and work can be fun. Work needs to be fun. There doesn't always need to be pleasant. And, you know, there are, there are times when things are challenging and we have to stretch ourselves, but, and Mm -hmm. when we bring in a playfulness that brings a lightness that light lightens and lightens our experience and our existence. And that micro moment of enlightening helped me to connect with some of the grander existential you know, questions that I wrestle with that, and I do use the word wrestle purposely there because as much as I want to shift my language toward a more playful and 
you know, engaging type of thing. They're like, that's part, that's mm. part of the options is that, that quality too, where we're like really wrestling. And, um, and I've, you know, and part of that was, uh, my mental health working through anxiety and depression and mm-hmm. those, you know, and those are not things to be trifled with. So, mm. um, you know, if anyone's listening and, and feels like they might need to need, need encouragement to get help, please do because you're mm. worth it. And it's so worth it. You don't understand how significant you are. Yeah. And you don't need to Mm. because your ego, you're not serving your ego. Your ego is Mm. here to serve us. It's to serve all of us, the collective. It's not here to serve you individually, even though it will do that. It's how Mm. do I, and this is another question that I've been asking, how do I show up with my gifts and what is the best way that I can serve the people that I am in connect connection with and the people that might potentially become connected with me. How can I show up and serve with my gifts in the best way? So that's the question Mm. that I've come to and that I continue to meditate on. And I continue to ask in different aspects of, of my goings on of like everything from administrative to the warm up session to, you know, the performance element Mm. and all of those different places. It's, for me, I was finding a balance between the great existential question, which was, which I was seeking to serve my ego and finding a way to let that serve others. Mm. You, you've always been um, a fascinating multi-hyphenate sort of person, at least since I've known you. <laughs> and one conversation we had a lot for a while was about are we wanting to do something because we want to tell other people that we're doing it? Mm-hmm. Are we wanting to do it for the sake of doing it? And then like walking that line. Yeah. And I wonder like, what has yeah. unfolded for you now that you're, now that you have this, this yeah. new philosophy with your ego? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I recognize, I mean, I think it's really, it's, it's so interesting when you start down that path of, you know, those existential questions and you kind of like, I went into this, I feel like in a lot, a lot of ways, I feel like I withdrew. Um, part of the pandemic was a relief to me because I was able to mm-hmm. withdraw and I was able Same to here. kind of go into my solitary monk mountain, you know, space, even though I didn't mm. physically go anywhere internally, I was, I was on that path. And part of the beauty of that is recognizing that I don't have to go physically into the exclusive remote mountains in order to have this experience. It is here within me where I am now and bringing that to my practice, bringing that to everything allowed me to realize and, and helped me to understand that everything that you do communicates what you believe about yourself and what story you believe and what you want to tell or show rather. So in writing, there's often that delineation of show, don't tell, which Mm. in most cases you want to show and don't tell. And other times you do want to tell, recognizing that. So there's also another element that I wanted to talk about, which is understanding the difference between our systems that have been developed and the like legacies that we've inherited that have perpetuated this idea of domination Mm. rather Mm -hmm. than pleasure. And I just read, um, I just read the book sacred pleasure by Brianne Eisler. 
who talks about the historical context of that and how it led to the patriarchy and this ideology of domination. And so when I started to do a lot of self-reflection, again, the micro and the macro are intertwined. And what I started to realize too is like, okay, I can only control my own attitudes and my own actions. Because I believe in autonomy and freedom, I would never want to impose my will or my beliefs upon someone else. And again, going back to the open palms, ask, invite, but do not, do not grasp and try to force. Likewise, you know, do not just like reject or grab, but just allow it, allow it. to. And if it's not for you, allow it to pass right through, you know, allow it to just mm. pass, pass on. The concept of self-recognition when, um, when I'm engaging in interactions, there's, you know, being an artist requires that you market yourself, especially in our day and age where we've got social media, we've got all of this access to technology and new ways to engage with audiences. The important thing for me was to understand how I was using it rather than getting swept up by the current trends or what so-and-so else is doing that might work for them, but that might not be the choice that I want to make. And that doesn't. And a lot of times I felt repelled by the quality that I was hearing from others. And so, mm. you know, there's a lot of things that a lot of things that begin in truth can become contrived in order to sell something. Oh yeah. And that, Again, I'm just going to keep using that word repels. It's repellent to me. And so I'm, I'm asking, you know, like, for example, I consider myself an introvert. I consider myself an outgoing introvert. I can do small talk. I can show up at a party and have a good time, but I'm not inspired by that. I'm not generated. My energy is not, my energy is drained by that environment. Mm. And it's also, there's this kind of mm, expectation, if you will, that, if you are loud and outgoing and bright and ah, that you will get more <laughs> attention, which ultimately mm. when we say the words pay attention, that's because our ultimate currency is our attention. The attention mm. is our, is our most valuable resource. It is, it is especially now. Yeah. Especially now. And it's not, What's cool is it's, we are constrained by things like time. We are constrained by other limitations that exist within our physical environment. Yet because of the internet, because of our accessibility, we have so much more potential. So there's so much more potential for where that attention can go and how it can grow. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's a, it's a very important to be asking myself when I'm working to ask myself the question what is the intention with this? And what is this for? How does this facilitate ease? How does it facilitate pleasure rather than domination? How does it reach someone and enlighten and give lightness where there is heaviness, where there is a dark, heavy sense or expectation or experience, which for me came from my, you know, should and right and wrong. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. experience also because of whatever reasons I would attribute it to my star sign Virgo that I have a mm -hmm. I have a special inclination toward criticism and analysis which when turned upon myself mm -hmm. became a disintegrating use of that attention mm -hmm. 
And so for me, it was really breaking down those things, but cultivating an awareness to the point where I, I realized you're not using your energy in a way that's supporting your life. You're using a way you're using your energy in a way mm-hmm. that is disintegrating your own life. It is tearing you down. It is making you feel heavy and dark and, you know, sh- and I was shrinking. And so rather than mm. going that way, you know, without, without saying that's bad and wrong, I realized that's an option in the realm of infinite possibilities mm-hmm. of options. That's one option that I choose not to go. And so palms up and open, let's try a different path. And that's how I navigate now toward, well, what may come, which going back to your question about what's next, gosh, you know, there are multiple avenues of expression that I've been playing with, which include poetry and include photography and, you know, and some of these other things that ultimately come back full circle to the idea, what story am I telling? What story am I experiencing? Do I tell? And what happens, what's cool is like, okay, I do all this work internally. That's great. That's really great. And what happens when I begin to interact with others? That's where it gets messy mm-hmm. because no one else has had access to all of that work that I've done. So they don't know the script that I'm reading and they may not be, and they may be, you know, reading, they're reading a different script that's in their world. And so every moment we have the opportunity to like calculate and reassess and shift and, you know, and react and interact in a way that can continue to move us toward that like heaviness or, and move us toward lightness. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful to know when they are appropriate, because sometimes you want to shut something down or you want to say, nope, not that, like, that's not where we're going. It's important to understand that. And it's important to use that. Mm. But I did um, want to bring it back briefly to what you were saying with what you do with all of this different art and interacting with it. And I think that is something I've decided for myself. It's not going to be the same for everyone who, who makes art in any way. I have decided for myself that Mm. part of what making art means is that interaction for me. Yeah, It's like the piece is not complete until it has interacted. For me, that was a healing from this whole world of opera where Mm -hmm. you're like, it has to be perfect Mm -hmm. and you have to have been given permission. Like you work on five songs until you're given permission to work on the whole show. And like, maybe you're just like over off in the corner, like working on this one role that you hope maybe one day you'll be cast in, but you don't let anyone hear it. You let people hear five songs, the same damn five songs. Until until, you're blue in the face. (laughs) Until someone gives you permission. And oh my God. Um, And like a healing thing for me has been, you know, having these platforms that, you know, these social media companies Mm -hmm. that we love to hate. But like, what's been great about it is I can just put shit out there and it can be complete. (laughs) It can interact. Um, And it's not shit. Yeah. (laughs) I may put, I may put my, I may put my work out there. Yeah. I may put my work out there. And that kind of brings me to this journey of being an artist. And I know we've already been on for an hour. Holy crap. I thought we were going (laughs) to. 
<laughs> I love this essay you have about what it means to be an artist. And um, if you have time, if you want to stay another 15, yes. we could listen to it and then discuss sure. it. I will edit it in afterwards, but we will listen to it together real quick. Okay. So I keep feeling like I haven't answered your questions. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. Oh, it's such a beautiful unfolding though. I mean, it's always no one so has to answer my questions. And I, I mean, I think you're answering my questions, but well, it's so funny because um because I have this I have this like dichotomy always constantly going on where I'm like, have I said enough? Mm. Have I said too much? And there's always that crazy tug of war internally, which actually I know now is the constantly spinning mm. circle, cycling through life, cycling through art, and all the different things are integrated into the wholeness of being and the wholeness of the story that you know, becomes my life. An artist. Do you know you are an artist? Do you believe it? Accept it? Or have you been conditioned to refuse this label, narrowly defining who and how and what makes up someone with this title? Perhaps you believe an artist is only one of the masterful visual or auditory creators in the realm of painting, drawing, music making, and the like. Maybe you consider a real artist an individual who maintains financial stability from selling pieces or prints or, as is more common, perpetually struggles. What if the term artist could stretch, could bend and expand to hold a wider diversity of individuals as much as the word human? An artist is a communicator, a present and aware chooser of the quality and quantity of one's his and her and their own participation in relationship with energies or resources. Okay, that was maybe a lot. Let's work backward. Resources or energies make up the wide spectrum of colors, textures, patterns, sounds, and every element or principle in the practice of art. This extends to invisible and tangible feelings, thoughts, concepts, and the like that are, likewise, translatable. Consider sight as its own language and taste another. What would the color chartreuse taste like? What color expresses petrichor, that invigorating scent after a summer rain? What sound evokes the thrill of epiphany when an idea reaches a profound new clarity? What does a thought look like? It depends. And contrast provides context in depicting the relationships that emerge between things. It begins with oneself. Artists are cartographers mapping their inner child and parent voices and every other relationship spiraling out from these. The lover, the friend, and the stranger. An artist is one who accepts authorship and ownership over what they say and who also embraces change as the only reliable constant. An artist considers the road ahead, looks at challenges as questions, problems as opportunities, and limitations as guides. One chooses what to say, how to act and respond, not blindly following a generation's old script, but charting new paths, almost always, without any guarantee of a positive or comfortable outcome. 
Knowing what it means to risk her life, an artist yields her power to every measure of cycling through life to death into rebirth. He steps, stumbles, and skips into an empowered dance with a being alive. An artist faces internal ghosts claiming fraud along with the external cries of imposter or fake or even worse, forgettable. An artist is daring and bold, often in quiet, subtle, and frequently overlooked ways. Certainly, historically speaking, an artist finds she is readily undervalued. They recognize the limits of their tools, even as they hone techniques in using and in wielding them. An artist is monarch and attendant, decreeing and carrying out a vision for their realm, which is their life. He is, she is, they are, both humble master and glorified servant, knowing what she is saying and doing, while at the same time having almost no clue, an artist lives in this land of opposites, sovereign in this land of opportunity. An artist is also the determining voice, judiciously sifting through data returned or gathered from an experiment, an exploration, an expression. They are simply seeking, seeing, and saying what they saw in what was sought. An artist is someone who inquires and waits for a reply while continuing to gather input, observe, question, and assert a perspective. Cultivating adaptability to change, an artist is often a pioneer in the community. In solitude, an artist remembers that he is never alone and is constantly at work to integrate the extensive and often chaotic data, the resources of every interaction in his life, whether trivial or pivotal. And furthermore, to express, to communicate what is distilled. An artist is not the chosen one, gifted with talent beyond comprehension. An artist is the choosing one. One, once done, who knows it has only just begun. Oh, I love it. Aww. <laughs> I have not returned to that in quite a while. <laughs> I really feel like it just puts such a beautiful button on this interview because I was listening to that thinking, that's literally everything we've talked about. Yeah. Like the process of becoming this person who calls themselves artist. An artist is one who is not the chosen one. It's the one doing the choosing. I love that. <laughs> and it's so true. Like this tendency we have. I used to think I couldn't call myself an artist because it was just something that sounded pretentious and talking about myself, you know? And that was just an indication of my idea of who an artist was supposed to be. And that like, we, we can't be a normal person and have that when really it's actually quite normal to be an artist. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go. <laughs> I'm like, do I get back on a soapbox or do we wrap it up? <laughs> <laughs> get on um, one more soapbox. This the, thing is here for your soapbox. I know, right? The um, I, I live on a soapbox. The, the idea is that we our culture has this fanatical rejection and worship of celebrity. We celebrate mm. and yet we demonize those things that we covet. 
mm. which is the creative expression of another. And not to get a not to get up too high on that horse, but Rianne Eisler really explains it very well in Sacred Pleasure that the shift from a creative, you know, mat- matriarchal humanity occurred thousands of years ago that we have now seen the very destructive reach of the dominator social model, which which seeks to and very easily does control through destruction, mm-hmm. control population through destruction, control through fear. And it's that scarcity ideology that I think is the seed of that where when we recognize that our creative potential is unlimited, Mm. then we don't have to go around destroying things in order to give them value, in order to inflate their value. Mm. But rather we understand that the inherent value is the potential creative expression that serves and unites us all Mm. rather than divide and destroy. And so as I sorted through my own experience with the patriarchy and all of the different social issues that are going on, the different elements of that ideology are expressed everywhere. Mm. And what I now ask is how do I shift my experiences where I was trained, where I was just unconsciously going along with what I was around me? How do I shift away from the dominator destruction, destructive scarcity model into a pleasure, a creative, collaborative, infinite possibility model? Yeah. The ultimately, actually, I just thought about this because you asked me, how did that shift my path? The thing is, is that as a singer, my voice is unique. My voice has an imprint you know, no. And, and what's wonderful about any instrument, no matter who's playing it, that sound is unique, even though there are, you know, even though clarinet sounds like a clarinet, you know, each, each one of us, because of the shape of our physical bodies, the way that we breathe, the spirit that infuses the music, those things are unique. And to add any other word to that description would be superlative because unique is already the most, you know, is at the end at the, it's at the end, which is also the beginning of an expression. Mm. Because of its uniqueness, that gives it its value. What we choose to do with that, how we engage with that, how we serve humanity with our gifts, that is what expands the value of what we have rather than seeking to grab for our perception of value as determined by others, as determined by historical structures, as determined by the industry. Mm-hmm. Rather, what do we have and how can it serve something greater than ourselves? Mm. Also serves ourselves. Mm. And to cultivate that voice, to cultivate that awareness, the voice, the choice is what my platform is now. I wanted to ask you about that. You're going into coaching and it's a sort of creative coaching and creativity as a lifestyle. Yes. Coaching people through that sense of chaos. Yes. And that chaos, I love how you put it because it's like chaos as just an accepted and expected place to start when you are creating. I would love to talk more about what that means to you. Yeah. Well, having spent so much time developing my own voice and a specific quality that fits into a bel canto classical style singing, I also, as I mentioned, I had experience with the acapella world and making other sounds. And I even played with beatboxing when I was in college a little bit. I never performed, but I played (laughs) with it. 
And the different things that we can do last, uh, actually during the pandemic last year, I, uh, one of the choirs that I've sung with the LA Choral Lab did a really cool project, a unique project. It was a like mapped concert of sorts where people would go, it was pre-recorded. People would go into the park and as they walked through the certain space, they would hear different sounds. The mm. song would last as long as they were within a certain range. And then there would be other little sounds that would play mm. throughout that if they walked past them. And one of those, one of the pieces that I did for that was a bunch of bird sounds mm. and some other, you know, some other kind of ethereal things um, or other like instruments, like, um, like a wind chime and things like that. And those, those elements really fascinate me as an artist who uses her voice, how do we use our voice to communicate a story? What different qualities can we bring in? And there are so many wonderful artists out there who are doing just that. And they use, you know, even going back into our sort of ancient times, the shamanic historical practice of invocation, invocation, invoca, mm. in your voice is to bring in the spirit of, of divinity and to communicate something is to connect with another person. And what we're here, you know, Brene Brown tells us that we're here for connection. We're wired for it. So cultivating our voices helps us to understand how we're communicating with someone and to be clear about what our intention is. Likewise, when we receive, we are also clear and we are also curating all of the cacophony of what's coming at us. Mm. And we play with, we play with chaos in order to, you know, as a, as a child, we babble and we make all kinds of sounds and we play with our articulators and all the different sounds that we can make until we are affirmed and rewarded by the community around us who say, yes, these are sounds that we make. These are sounds that engage and communicate needs. So your physical body is cared for. So you can have the sweet if you want, mm. you know, all those different things. It doesn't end when we're children, you know, throughout our entire lives, we're, we're seeking for ways to bring comfort to our bodies, to bring comfort to our lives, which are challenging and are hard to surrender to death each time it comes around is probably the most, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine anything else that's more excruciating than, than grieving death. And I think as artists, we undervalue how often we go through that process because as a performing artist, especially, there's always that post show blues, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, um, and I have never had a child, but there's postpartum blues, you know, there's this de or depression, even not just blues, but chemical changes that affect how we receive and how we express and understanding those things and how they are functioning helps us to choose pathways that can healthfully reestablish an equilibrium that is manageable. And as I said, we are always seeking ways to make our lives comfortable and fun and enjoyable. Mm. You know, I, I don't think anyone would choose. I mean, there are people who would choose destruction, but they have, <laughs> they have a connection in their brain that says I'm powerful because I've destroyed something rather mm. than I'm powerful because I've created something. Mm. And so as my work shifts into coaching and into um, other creative expressions, that idea is central to that whole platform. Mm. How do you use your voice? What story are you telling? How does it sound? How does it feel? Mm. Those things are the micro pieces of a macro expression, which is your life. How do you show and not tell? How do you let your life express 
what it is that you would say mm. given the chance you are given the chance mm. we are we have we have to it's all we have to do mm. thank you so much Monica. And that, my friends, was Monica Beale. Keep up with her on Instagram at monikersmonica and check out her website with her coaching at monicabeale.com. Keep up with the pod on Instagram at Making It an Opera. If you're listening to this when it comes out on November 1st, 2022, join us on IG Live tomorrow, November 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern for a special Young Artist Dream session with entrepreneur, singer, songwriter, fashionista, influencer, and the pioneer of trap opera, Madeline Brené, who will give us her take on what a young artist training in opera would look like if it actually nurtured and empowered artists to use their voices. You can also support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and pitching some money by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.makingitanopera.com. Links, as always, will be in the show notes. See you soon. Making It an Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me, Gwendolyn Kuhlman.